Hi, I'm Clayton Collins, CEO at HW Media and your host for the Housing News Podcast. At HW, I have the pleasure of leading Housing Wire, Real Trends, Reverse Mortgage Daily, and Altos Research, all aligned in the mission to move the housing market forward. This is one reason why I'm so excited for today's guest, Kristen Messerly. Kristen's the co-founder and executive director of First Home IQ. Kristen's also the founder of Cultural Outreach, a business which she started, ran, and then sold a couple years ago. Her work has been very focused over the years on helping the housing industry access and communicate with diverse demographics in the housing market, and most recently, a lot of work on first-time homebuyers. Today's conversation and podcast episode is focused in on Kristen's most recent 2023 Gen Z homebuyer report. We also talk about another report, the Next Gen Women's Homebuyers Report, which talks about some of the challenges and opportunities of female homeowners and homebuyers in today's housing market. Kristen's had an incredibly impressive career with a, a massive impact on people across the housing ecosystem. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode with Kristen Messerly. Good morning, Kristen. We're coming into this episode. I think both of us just uh, just listened to a pretty interesting podcast on some of the demographic trends in the U.S. I think that was the episode by the New York Times Daily podcast, right? Yeah, yeah. I just listened to it this morning. Yeah. So tell me, tell me the takeaways that you were coming out of that podcast with, because I, I I listened to it on a long walk this morning as well. Um, so it's kind of fortuitous that we're on air having this conversation today. That's so funny. Me too. I was walking. Um, so yeah, I actually wrote down a couple things, um, because while I was walking, I was like, Oh, I want to post this. And you know, it's stuff we know that people are leaving major cities, especially coastal cities, um, like New York and LA for places like Austin and, um, you know, even I, I used to live in Oklahoma City and there's a lot of people moving there from these major coastal cities. And what was interesting in the podcast, though, is that they really highlighted that affordable housing was the major reason that people were leaving. Um, people have more, you know, the ability to have remote jobs and that type of thing, which has changed recently. Um, but I thought that was a and one of the things I wrote down was that the politics and housing don't make sense. Um, that's one of the quotes that they said. And I think, you know, just the reason why people aren't, or why we're not getting more affordable housing or even housing options built in these coastal cities is that people don't want to have more housing built because it could depreciate their homes and that type of thing. So I thought all of that was interesting. The, the NIMBY mindset, right? Yeah, 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 totally. Some of that. And also just even like that you bought a house that was really expensive in these cities and you don't want to have more options that are going to increase supply and decrease the value of your home. You know, it was an interesting frame that the host used. They talked to, they interviewed different, um, first time home buyer type, like age range people on like their decisions to leave or stay in major cities. So I believe they'd interviewed, uh, a younger, like early career woman who was like from New York, born and raised in the city and made the decision to move to the Southeast US because it fit 
the the goals she had for herself in terms of like business ownership and home ownership. Um, and then talked about like some similar scenarios in, in San Francisco and on the West coast and like kind of boiled those source conversations down. I think coupled with data as like a potential like brain drain issue from these like really hot coastal markets that I think Kristen, like when you and I were graduating college and like the last generation we like a lot of people looked to the coastal cities it's like hey if you're ambitious this is like where you go and they're really pointing at like a potential change there and how that could impact the housing market right yeah and it's interesting to think you know they like you said they're interviewing people like this guy from New York that moved to Minneapolis and they're like, you can make the paycheck from uh, a New York job and live in a place that's a much more affordable where you can have a, a bigger home and not share a bathroom with somebody and whatever. So, um, but I, yeah, I think that those options are just now recently available. And so it's interesting to see how cities are going to evolve and you know adapt to accommodate that. Well, there are options that are like, much more available to people at a certain stage in their life. And I think if you're at a stage where you already have kids in school or, or aging parents, it's harder to like, to leave your, your coastal hometown. Um, I guess that cuts both ways. If you have, uh, you, that might also be a reason you stay in like your, your, your small town hometown. But, um, what I'm getting to is like you've done a lot of work, Kristen, on next gen home buyers and, and first time homeowners. So let's talk a little bit about your view of like who is the next gen home buyer and uh, and how does that how does that relate to this the story that you and I both just uh, listened to this morning. Yeah, it has been really interesting to follow the data. I've started doing next gen a next gen home buyer report annually um, three years ago. And that was right when the pandemic hit, when we did our first one and um, even did a follow-up survey a few months after because it was like, everything's changing so quickly. Um, and and we're surveying people between the ages of 18 and 44. Um, so this last year, I segmented that out between Gen Z, young millennials and older millennials um, and really didn't see much of a difference between young and older millennials, but seeing a big difference between Gen Z and millennials. Um, um, which is why recently, just a, a few days ago, I launched a Gen Z home buyer report from some of that data and also did a follow-up survey a, few, a, a couple months ago. Um, but it's been the areas that have come up consistently and I've kind of started to drill into to follow um, in the recent surveys is that financial literacy and education has been a, a huge part of this um, or what people value because people are feeling like they don't have support or access to quality education um, around their financial, personal financial situation. Um, and then also uh, lack of trust. Like we're seeing a huge drop in trust just over the last few years. If you look at other data, like from the Edelman Trust Institute and, and things like that, you're seeing this in every industry. But I think especially when it comes to buying a home, people like Gen Z is a lot less trusting of loan officers and real estate agents and banks and credit unions. Um, and so, you know, and so the distrust and education piece, I think, are in the affordability factor are some of the big areas that have come up consistently over the last few surveys. Like being born and raised in a digital environment and the internet where it's so easy to get lied to nonstop. It's created a generation of more skeptical consumers and more skeptical people 
period. So when you focus in on Gen Z, do you find that their skepticism or mistrust is um, focused at the professional, like the the loan originator or the agent, the overall concept of home ownership and the the housing market? Like where where does the distrust really like focus in? Yeah. So the it's kind of everything, uh, which is interesting. But I think that even whenever they go to the internet, like there's people say, oh, Gen Z and millennials and whatever are just trusting everything they see on the internet, but they're not actually. They're they're really distrusting of everything they read, everything that they, um, you know, people they talk to. Uh, they're especially distrusting of people who are selling something. And so, you know, that is going to include any business. Um, but I think that that and then the industry itself, they're very distrusting or the idea of homeownership. Um, so while the vast majority of the survey respondents in Gen Z um, said that they still wanted to buy a home someday, um, very few said that it was because of or that they were much less likely to say it was because of financial reasons, like the benefit of homeownership. And I think, yeah, it was one in three said that they um weren't sure whether buying a home was the way to build generational wealth, which is a pretty new, I think people are starting to think like, is this the right thing for me? Is this the way that, you know, we've, we've just done things in the past, but the world is changing so quickly. Um, we have much more flexibility, like we talked about the remote jobs, all of that is impacting whether or not they are feeling confident about their home, buying a home, being a good investment for them. It's really interesting. I've heard some research from Thousand Watt. Are you familiar with Thousand Watt? Yeah. So they've done some survey work on trust as well. And I, and I know they had a, a finding. I think there was an initial like assumption that real estate agents on reality TV would be a negative thing for the real estate profession. And you see all like the drama and behind the scenes, like like um, reality TV style Bravo shows that like wouldn't be good for the profession. But for millennials, that actually did create trust. And over the years that there's been all these new reality and like home flipping shows on the real estate industry, people feel like they, millennials felt like they understood the professional but better and had a, had a vantage point that helped them build trust. Does that seem to be playing out? Like the Gen Z is just different. Like the millennials had like something like front and center that helped them build trust. And now the internet and other forms of like entertainment media, um, are like harming trust for this next, this next gen Gen Z bar. Yeah. I don't know if it's harming trust as much as, uh, like transparency does help people move forward. And so I think that's what that did for millennials is seeing the, seeing what it looked like for people to buy homes. Um, and what has happened with, with a lot of first time home buyers is that they just don't make move forward because they don't know what to expect. They don't know what, you know, I think it was like one in five said that they weren't confident in any step of the home buying process. So there's like, a just an overall fear that once they move forward, they're not going to know how to make a right decision. And um, and lack of support, like I said, was something that came up really cons- big with Gen Z is that they weren't sure that they had the support they needed to make smart financial decisions. So I think that I don't think that that's I'm not sure that that's like hurting trust, but I think that the uh, overall under or, um, I don't know, maybe it is. I mean, I, I think 
we're seeing distrust drop across every industry from like government, healthcare, pharmaceuticals, I mean, even nonprofits and churches, all of that is like, is dropping significantly. Um, so maybe it is some of that, but I do know that Gen Z are, we're in an influencer economy where people are following individuals and watching what they did as a consumer or, or as an expert. And I think that's where people are getting traction with reaching Gen Z. Yeah, it's the influencers are able to take a a whole different tactic of of transparency and let people into their lives in a way that builds trust over the long term. That's that's a, it's a fascinating trend to watch. Kind of coming back to the the survey on on Gen Z, how are you defining what is the age range right now? And I'm kind of asking through the lens of for a long time we heard that millennials were never going to buy home, homes, but ultimately um, we had to remind ourselves that most millennials were still under their, their parents' roofs at that time. So, uh, they grew up and, and they did. Uh, so I'm kind of curious about how, like, that trend that we learned in the millennial timeframe may or may not apply to the age range that we see Gen Z folks in today. Yeah. So, um, the age range that we're looking at with Gen Z is 25 and below. Um, and I, I, for the purposes of the survey, capped that at 18 because uh, yeah, 18, they're an adult or whatever. So, so we looked at 18 to 25 for Gen Z. Um, and I think that, and we compared them with the data we had on millennials too, uh, which were 25 to 44. Um, but I think that what we're, I mean, there, it, there are Gen Z that are buying. And I think that one of the big values that we saw with Gen Z is financial security and stability. And so I think that that's an, a huge opportunity it, to be able to go to Gen Z who they want education, they want more support, they want financial security, and but they are not sure whether buying a home is a good way to build wealth. They're not sure whether buying a home is going to be a good investment for them. So then, I mean, I just see a huge opportunity there. Yeah. So how should the housing industry, the the mortgage and real estate professionals out there take the knowledge that you're bringing to, to the surface here about the the next gen, Gen Z homebuyer population to to help help this group out? I think that there has to be, uh, you have to look at your customer experience from the very beginning, whenever you get a lead all the way through post-closing and, and see how your, your, walking them every step of the way from immediately whenever you get that lead to like sending them your reviews and an intro video and just hyper personalizing the experience. So a lot like the data that we've gathered is showing that people want to, um, you know, again, they want that support, they want the education, um, but they are not interested in working with someone who is a salesperson or is, you know, are going to like sell them on something or feel like they are the uh, authority in some way. They want someone to be able to be an expert on their team, you know, and so um, look at your customer experience. And then also, I think leveraging the uh, like younger people to be influencers in your, whether that's, you know, at a mass scale or just within your company to bring that kind of education in a way that Gen Z is going to digest that and actually, you know, consume it. Um, so that takes a huge shift. Uh, but there's a lot of companies that are helping people with this. And I think it's really important that you are making that shift and being able to reach people where they are. 
Yeah. So, I mean, is that like under the assumption that like millennials wanted to buy from millennials, Gen Xers wanted to buy from Gen Xers and, and Gen Z when they are in market are most likely to trust and listen to and believe in the advice from other folks in their, their demographic and age range? I actually think that it's it's not necessary that you have someone their age that are walking them through the process. I think that being like having someone people their age that are delivering education like through TikTok or through you know education materials that can be a really great way to build trust through marketing and outreach. But then beyond that, you know, having loan officers and whoever, I, I don't think that that is a. a like they're going to trust then the someone who's authentic with them and is going to provide personalized advice to them. It, it doesn't matter what their age is for that. That's helpful. So like the whole company does not need to necessarily shift in terms of workforce to match the, the, the Gen Z demographic, but there does need to be a voice and, and spokespeople and social presences from, um, educated, informed housing professionals that can help educate and inform this next generation of home buyers. Yeah. And that's exactly, I mean, I've been talking about this forever that you want to reflect the market, especially in your marketing and outreach. That is important from any age, race, like whatever background, people want to feel like they are understood and are going to be understood in working with that company. And if they don't see themselves reflected, it's just less likely that they're going to build that trust, even if that's subconscious, you know? So kind of thinking about the current messaging and and marketing landscape in the mortgage world now, are there any practices that just have to disappear like this that aren't going to resonate with with this next generation of home buyers? I mean, I I think there's a lot that needs to change. Like honestly, there's so much that I still see a lot of really corporate looking posts on social media. I see still see, you know, I mean sales messages just absolutely need to go away. There no one is going to, especially with Gen Z, but also millennials and most people are not attracted to a company or not going to follow a company and listen to them if they're sending out sales messages, you know? So I think um you know, like I said, anything that is not educational and leading people to a personalized experience, it that needs to shift. Yeah. I mean, I think about the current mortgage origination marketing landscape and like, it seems like there's a, a massive focus on, on brand. The, the big lenders want their brand to be recognizable. And the first time they talk to a loan originator, or get referred by a real estate agent, the originators don't want that brand to be the first time they're heard. And I think that explains a lot of like, the sports sponsorships and, and TV slots that, that we've seen over the years. Then it feels like it's a, a shift to like pricing and timing. And like, there's a, there's emphasis on like who has the lowest rates, who can close loans the fastest. But in this conversation and what the survey is showing, it's, the message really needs to shift more to the consumer about how them less about the lender, more about like the potential borrower. Right. That's a really good point. I'm glad that you brought that up because that's exactly it. I think people want to know that, yeah, they are going to be educated. And also people, one thing we haven't necessarily talked about is like people are afraid of the way the housing market 
looks right now and um and the, they're getting a lot of messages from TikTok and and other media sources that are telling them now is not a good time to buy and 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 the housing market's going to crash or whatever and they've been hearing that for a long time but they they need to hear from you what is a what what the market looks like what you know what has this looked like over a long period of time and and kind of get that expertise about the market as well and we're talking about all this through the lens of like we need to recruit more Gen Z home buyers to the market, but we're also looking at a market where we have like historically low inventory and some supply demand imbalances and in most markets in the U S how do you think these Gen Z buyers are looking at this market today where affordability is highly challenged both off of, of rate and, and home prices um, inventory is incredibly low. So it's hard to find the home, whether it's a single family residence in the burbs or a town home in the city, hard to find what you're looking for and, and then manage expectations. And on, on top of that, that this home might not look like, like what you had on your dream board. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think all of that is stuff that needs to be talked about, you know, and I, I think I think in the Gen Z report we found wanna say it was thirty nine percent of Gen Z said that affordability or having a you know, that that was a factor in them not considering home ownership right now. Um and so and then um eighteen percent said something about that gig work or, you know, contract work was preventing them from buying a home. And that requires education on like this is how you can buy a home in by being a contract worker. But anyway, all of that is a current barrier. And I think affordability challenges are, are clearly not going anywhere. Um, but you can help set people up to be able to buy a home a lot faster than they are because they just think that it's so far out there. I mean, I even thought this. When I bought a home a couple years ago, I thought when I moved to LA that I would never be able to afford a home here, you know, and um, and partly because I owned my business and it was like, you know, but I just needed education to, and I, it's funny because I worked in this business and delivered a lot of education, but it just, we hear so many different voices about how scary the market is. And then, um, but helping people, I, I've been talking about like, telling everyone that you'll make a plan for them for home ownership, whether that's now or 10 years from now. And a lot of times it's a lot sooner than they realize, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It just takes, it takes advice and understanding that they don't have to save for 20% down, uh, which I think is a message that is finally getting some legs. Yes. I don't know if you saw this, but in the Gen Z report, we saw that um, let or Gen Z were more likely to I don't know how to phrase this, less likely than millennials to say that they needed 20% down. Um, so it's really positive. We've, it was still a lot of high, very high percentage of, um, next gen who were saying that they need 20%, but it's decreasing. So that's good. <laughs> yeah. One of the other things that stood out to me in the report was kind of the, the phrasing around if Gen Z or next gen buyers thought that housing would be a good investment. How do you think advisors should like, speak to the necessity or 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 not the necessity of your primary residence being thought of as an investment. And like I say this as a millennial who's benefited from amazing home price appreciation um all due to the the timing of my generation. 
but I, um, but I do, you know, I, I didn't buy my first home as an investment. I bought it as a place because we like had just had a kid and like I needed a place for my family to <laughs> grow up. Yeah. No, I think there's two different things. One is, uh, I do think it's important to educate about the history of the housing market and where we expect that to go and, and do it in a very realistic way because I think we have to be real that like, you know, housing prices may not appreciate the way that they have in the past, you know, and I think um, talking about that is important so that people can have some level of expectation, but be able to see, here's what it really, because what was really influential for me was to look at the rent versus own over and cost over time, you know, and to realize like what this looked like over five years or whatever. Um, and that, that was influential, but also to not only speak to homeownership as an investment, uh, because yeah, it, it was interesting to see that like, one in three said that, yeah, that they weren't sure it would be a good investment. And they were really highly likely to say they weren't sure that their home was a good investment if they did buy. Um, and so, but they still want to own a home. And for me, buying my home brought a lot of stability, like improved mental health. It improved my feeling of stability in my community. There's a lot of values to, um, to value to owning a home beyond the investment piece that I think needs to be talked about too. I'm, I'm rocking a, I just voted in Dallas County shirt. I actually vote in school board elections now. I'm in the community. It's, there's something, that, that. there's something to, uh, yeah. <laughs> there's something to be said for, uh, that sense of community. Yeah. Um, on the idea of, your home being an investment, like this, you know, this might be making it overly complex, but the re- the best real estate investors in single family housing, commercial real estate, office retail aren't investing on the bet of asset appreciation. They're betting, they're investing on the bet of the, of the utility. Okay. The, the operating income continuing to come in at like the underwritten rate. And I think if, home buyers can think of the utility of buying a home. It creates like a healthier decision-making process than just betting on home price appreciation. And the utility isn't literally just a roof over your head. It's also the benefits of principal reduction through paying your mortgage each month. So like there's a lot of levers to like home ownership being a really powerful tool, but I don't, I, I want to refrain from sounding like I'm speaking my book. Obviously I'm uh vested in the housing industry, but I, um, you know, I, I, it is, it, this is how I see it. Yeah, no, exactly. I think that's so true. And that, that kind of conversation needs to be had really authentically in, you know, across people's platforms. So Kristen, in addition to the Gen Z report, you also did a deeper dive into the, a women's home buying report. So give us some context, the key insights that came out of, of this research project. Yeah, that was really fun um, to do. This year was the first time we've dove deeper and done additional surveys throughout the year. Um, We have one big annual survey that we do every year, but then this year we dove in with single women homebuyers in March. Um, And so it was not surprising in some ways that women were less trusting than men. Um, Women had felt that they had less support than men. but, you know, one thing to mention, too, is that single women do make up the second largest cohort of home buyers, double that of single men. This is a really important market. And to your point, maybe less so around the investment piece, but because homeownership does bring that sense of community and stability and that value is like really strong with women um, specifically. 
But I think um, there was a one I wanted to mention. Oh, they were significantly more stressed about their finances. Um, I don't have it in front of me, but women were less, more likely than men to say that um, just not knowing where to start was a current barrier to buying a home. And I thought that really stood out to me. The the education and distrust um, were two, and the lack of support were the three areas that really stood out to me in the report. Um, And I thought are things that are very easy, like easy in a way for us to address. Like we can really reach this market. There's a big opportunity there of women who want to buy homes um, that just have these barriers that can be totally addressed by the industry, you know? We have a Slack channel at HW that publishes all of the new registered users for our HW events, like the Gathering of Eagles coming up in June and Housing Wire Annual coming up in October. I was just scrolling through the Gathering of Eagles feed on Slack, and wow, I am blown away with the quality of the attendees. Leaders from Keller Williams, Better Homes and Gardens, EXP, Compass, Hannah Holdings, Remax, and Home Services, and incredible ecosystem partners like Zillow, Austin Board of Realtors, New Western Acquisitions, UWM, and Bright MLS, just to name a few. If you aren't familiar with GOE, this is our real estate brokerage event for the most elite brokers, teams, MLS execs, and state and local association of realtors leaders. June 18th through 21st in Austin, Texas at the amazing Omni Barton Creek Resort. Visit the events tab on realtrends.com or housingwire.com to register. So last month we did a a special podcast feature on the the modern home buying experience and modern home buyer um, uh, with in partnership with Zillow. And one of the episodes there was a new insight that came through that was actually pretty surprising to me because I so if we rewind pre COVID there was some studies starting to show that the one of the largest populations of like home buying growth was actually coming from single female home buyers. But during COVID, we that is was one of the groups that got hurt the worst in terms of stresses on their finances and potentially being, if they're part of a household, being the household member that stayed home with with kids when like schools were shut down or like whatever like the the COVID related stress point was. How, how do you think like the last couple of years impacted the the female the women home buyers that were part of the survey that that you completed? Yeah, we saw the exact, I mean, it was interesting to see how like the first survey that we produced was in April of 2020. And, um, and we saw this huge gap between men and women across every financial outcome, like stress around finances, um, whether they were investing in any area like stock market, um, even like health savings accounts, whatever it was, there was a huge gap there. And I even did a follow-up survey because of that gap. And I I was like, we have to make sure that this data was right. Like something is wrong here. You know, I just wasn't expecting that with millennial and, you know, next gen home buyers, uh, to have that big of a gap. But yeah, the, we, I looked at a lot of other data to see that, and they reported also in the follow-up survey about, um, 
women being dis- disproportionately impacted by COVID, but they're always disproportionately impacted with child care and elder care responsibilities. Um, and that has an impact on their career and wage, um, you know, the wage gap, that type of thing. Um, there's so many reasons why the gap exists, but the reality is that um, well, I've seen some data showing that they have bounced back. The segment has bounced back a lot from the disparities in COVID. Um, there's still always these other factors that are are coming, you know, coming into play. All right. So Kristen, you've, you've like built your career around home buying trends and, and demographics and the different populations of people that are buying or, or not buying homes. I'd love to go back in your story and, and hear more about what brought you into the housing industry and, you know, kind of dive into, into your career as a housing professional and entrepreneur. Yeah. It's, um, it's funny to think back about where I came from. I started out as a social worker and I worked with, unhoused youth, um, mostly in the healthcare space. Um, and then I also worked in the immigrant community and I did a lot of community organizing, um, including financial education and housing coordination. Um, and so, but while I was doing that, I just felt like there is, there's a higher level of impact that could be made. Um, and, and I wanted to start a business that was addressing some of these things. So initially I started a translation company, um, which I learned was really hard work with really low margins. <laughs> and um, <laughs> so I kind of, I was like testing different things, you know, to see what, what would stick. Um, and then I, I started, I was doing a lot of presentations on, um, you know, cultural differences and how to reach different markets. Um, and I, my dad worked in the mortgage business when I was younger. So I had some, you know, understanding of the market or the industry. And, um, and so I did a, oh, I, it was because I applied for, to speak at an MBA diversity and inclusion in, event. It was one of their, I think it was their first one and they're not doing them anymore, but, um, or the, the like conference itself. And, uh, they, and they were like, oh, you have the exact expertise we want to bring into this. And so I quickly just like shifted gears to focus on mortgage so that I was prepared for that event. And like everything rolled out from there where I started, you know, doing some speaking, but also, uh, research and education, homeownership education or financial literacy education for banks and mortgage companies and doing some of that community organizing that I did before for a CRA strategy. And that's how cultural outreach was born. So that MBA speaking opportunity was like, you also needed a, like a fee- something to put in that field on like, what company do you work for? Oh, cultural outreach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'd already started cultural outreach, but it was just something pretty different before I went to that event. <laughs> um, how, how did that, so you said they're not doing the D- DEI event anymore. How, um, do you know what happened there? Or like how has that shifted into like content and the, the rest of the, the tentpole events? They're doing a lot more DEI now. And so they moved it from they, and they probably still have like a round table. Last I was looking into it, they had some things like that, but they started incorporating it into all of their events, which I think is great instead of having just one conference focused on it. We've t- had the same conversation at Housing Wire many times. And like when print was a bigger focus, we talked a lot about doing a like DEI, like print focus, like monthly edition and like ultimately like made the decision it's better to bring the content 
in the the theme year round than try to like plug it into like a single month and like make it just a, a single event thing. So I, I, um, I understand the decision NBA made and I have to say it, it, it aligns with how we've, we've thought of DEI at, at HW. Yeah. DEI has changed so much through the years and it's been really interesting and cool to kind of watch that evolve, uh, from when I started in it, I mean, with like the NBA and stuff, a little over 10 years ago to see how uh, now it's the conversation just has shifted so much. And that's really cool. Do you think, um, how does the conversation shift in the environment that we're in now when, when inventory is tighter, affordability is more challenged, um, industry professionals have their, like their focus drawn in 20 different areas because of margin compression and like low volume. Like h- how do things like DEI hold up in economic periods? Like the one we're working through. I, I mean, I think it's, I always, I guess say it's more important now than ever or whatever, but it's, I looking at the market now, people are looking for new channels of business too, you know, whereas a year or two ago, there, it, we just had so much business that it was hard to keep up. Like, I'm not going to look at any kind of specific channel strategies, you know. And um, but now, it, looking at how do we connect with the Latino market or Black Americans and be able to actually connect with them in a authentic way to build new business, like that is something lenders are actually looking at now. Um, so, or giving more space for, and then of course, Gen Z being over half, um, representing ethnic minorities, that's a, um, that's now like a requirement whenever you're looking at, and overall everyone is valuing DEI in a, a different way. So I think, um, it, it's becoming more of like a necessity to business. I think in DEI, much like in the Gen Z trend, there's a, it's a long-term commitment in, in building trust. And so you start to see some, some lenders stand out. Like, I, like just thinking off the top of my head, I'm seeing movement mortgage invested over multiple years and like their grab the key partnership and new American funding has built a, a long-term focus around the, the Hispanic segment. Um, we're seeing different groups pop up that have long-term focus on serving, serving veterans and other, demographic communities in different parts of the US um are you are you seeing any initiatives that like really stand out to you as like top tier and helping make the housing ecosystem more more inclusive yeah i mean i definitely would have brought up movement and new american funding um there's a i've i would forget all of them right now but i what, one thing i thought was interesting is that i am seeing new lenders pop up that are focused on specific segments there's two in particular that have um, recently launched that are focused on the Latino segment. And it's because they can authentically reach them. They are the CEO and founders are Hispanic and Latino, and they are, you know, like focused there. And I think that this has to be something that like, I, I don't think lenders who are just looking for the quick revenue opportunity are going to do well in those markets. And I, I don't, yeah, it has to be a long-term commitment where they're actually investing in those communities. Long-term and authentic and education-focused. Um, so, Kristen, you, you brought up financial literacy and education a few times. Can we use that as a bridge to to learn more about what you're working on today? Yeah, very excited about what I'm working on today. Um, so I, I sold cultural outreach to Namba a couple years ago and um, have worked in some with some fintech companies over that time period. And just very recently, um, 
found what I'm really passionate about. I'm still doing some like consulting and research and that type of thing, speaking. Um, but we've launched a nonprofit, First Home IQ, um, with Dave Savage and Todd Bookspan. And, um, and it is focused on educating high school and college students or Gen Z overall. So anyone under 25 on home ownership. Um, so we're creating financial literacy and home ownership education materials through online courses and a curriculum. Um, and then we're also leveraging people in the industry to deliver that education or presentation materials on site to classrooms, um, colleges and universities, um, uh, and community organizations. So you're only a few months in with First Home IQ now, but tell us more about activation. I'd love to hear about like how industry professionals are actually taking the the content and going into their communities. It's been so interesting. I just uh, gave an update to some of our donors and um, realized that I've done seventy over seventy five meetings with industry professionals just over the last couple of months. And so it's been a lot of like hearing from people who are experts in different spaces and um, finding out, you know, what we have to work with here, you know. And so part of this is uh, right now I'm creating the online course material, but I'm getting people within the industry to um, donate a little bit of their time to deliver short videos about something from the content outline that I've created for these five or six different courses. And then I can create that material into, you know, the, the curriculum. And then, um, so that's one way that we're getting started. And then the others have a lot of people who have raised their hand saying they want to be volunteers or involved in their local school districts and can make those connections. So initially I'm looking for, I have, people who are going to pilot this in some of their local schools. Um, but I'm also looking for people now who are connected with their local school districts or a community organization. Like big, I'm connected with Big Brothers Big Sisters here in LA, but that type of thing where we can start those conversations and get those uh, classes set up so that we can start. We'll do a presentation um, from, with someone from the industry delivering that um, and then get them to adopt the curriculum potentially or at least direct the consumers back to the curriculum online. How do ind- industry professionals think about getting involved? And like, se- like 70 presentations is amazing. You're reaching thousands right now. So like, let's, let's use this in- intentionally, Kristen. I, um, I, I know that we have a lot of brokers that listen and like, you know, independent mortgage brokers make the choice, like they can do what they want to do and like get involved. Other folks are part of large corporations who, you know, might feel like they have a little more red tape to step through before like getting involved with a, with a nonprofit. Um, how does that work? Like how do industry professionals think about being involved with First Home IQ? Yeah, I haven't had anyone talk about red tape yet, um, but that's a good point. I I think that you know a lot of people want to give back, and that's been really cool to experience and see. And this this is what we want from First Home IQ. We don't want me or us to be delivering the education. We want the industry to be making this change um, and and delivering education to the next generation. So there's a lot of people who are saying, yes, I'm ready to deliver, you know, this presentation once a quarter or once, you know, once every semester or something like that. Um, But then I've also started conversations with corporations and I'm definitely looking for those uh, corporate sponsors who are interested in being real partners, you know, um, to deliver the education um, to like, throughout, have their company um, invested in doing some of that volunteer work as well, or um, and donating dollars from their the loans that they produce as well. 
So t- tell us a little more about the curriculum. Like where does where does first home IQ start and stop in terms of financial literacy? It's changed a lot as I've been going along and still very much in development. But I do have a and if anyone is interested in reviewing the outline of the curriculum, I've I've gotten a I think over 20 people within the industry giving feedback on that outline, which has been cool. Uh, but it starts with basic financial literacy, understanding what credit is, what debt is, you know, like how to save, how to budget, those types of things. Um, we don't want to go so in depth with financial literacy, um, but it has, there has to be a foundation there. So that's what has expanded since I first started the development is getting into laying that foundation. And then of course there's like when understanding when to rent versus own and, um, and then what the process of homeownership or buying a home looks like. Um, and then walking people through that process and even post, you know, like talking, having conversations with roommates and how to actually build wealth through, through homeownership as well. So we're trying to take people from start beyond finish. Um, but laying that foundation for financial literacy is really important. All right. So Kristen, continuing on the theme of education, you've partnered with housing wire to bring a a new video series to market. Tell us a little more about inside voices, the the objective, the types of guests, um, and how people can check this content out. Yeah, this has been really fun and I'm excited to continue to expand this. Um, Inside Voices, the focus is on understanding how to leverage financial literacy as a competitive advantage. So we're talking, it's like partly highlighting um, young influencers who are delivering financial literacy education and you're learning a little bit about that, but also learning about the Gen Z consumer, you know, at the same time. Um, so that's kind of twofold. And then also talking with people who are educating people through TikTok and, and Instagram and that kind of thing as a loan officer and um, hearing from them how they're leveraging education online to reach that, those segments and some of the um, benefits and like the ways that they're doing it. So it's been really interesting and we'll continue to expand what that looks like. Um, but the focus is on the financial literacy piece. And your most recent episode was with Shivani Peterson, um, who's built a prolific following on social with that education first mindset. Has there been anything from Shivani's interview or from your other episodes that that really stood out to you as a as a learning and something that you'd want to communicate again and continue to reiterate to our our audience of housing professionals? Gosh, there's been so much I've learned through these episodes. I actually just started going through and creating clips of them so that I can share those because I think there's just like, you know, big points in there. Uh, But yeah, with her, it was, she really doubled down on what she's passionate about. And I I don't know that that's like a huge, uh, oh, of course you do this, but she is, um, she's looking at women, she's reaching women and how they can build wealth and be empowered through the process. And that's something she cares a lot about. And so you see that very authentically through her videos. And, um, and the way that she talked about, I think was, uh, like the psychology of money and how she's, um, leveraging those interests to deliver that through her social presence makes it a lot easier for her to do, um, 
definitely not easy. It sounds like it's a lot of work, um, but something that that then comes across really authentically. And um, the next interview I'll do is with Dan Keller, who's also an influencer, loan officer, who's done a lot with financial education. And he talks about this too, like leveraging how he's communicating from the heart in a lot of the ways that he does this. And I think that's really key to being able to build a quality following. And if you want to check out Inside Voices and podcast episodes like this housing news episode, check out Housing Wire's YouTube channel for all the the video content of these conversations. Kristen, if anybody wants to check out your home buyer surveys or learn more about First Home IQ, where should they uh, where should they go? It's uh, really easy. Nextgenhomebuyer.com is where you can look at all of the past research that I've put together. Um, and then firsthomeiq.com is where you can go to learn more about the nonprofit. Working on the website, so it may be, you know, just forgive me for what's on there right now, but um, would love to have anyone's involvement on and really either of those and bringing more research to the industry and in uh, bringing more education. So I, I think the um, the startup lesson of uh, if you're not embarrassed by like the first iteration of your product or website, then you waited too long applies to the nonprofit world. I'm very much a subscriber of good and done is better than perfect and not. So uh, I am sure the first home IQ website is uh, is more than enough for this first launch of this brand new, perfectly mission aligned nonprofit. Kristen, thank you for your time today. Yeah, thank you so much. And that is a wrap for today's episode. Before we break, I want to bring awareness to things happening at HW Media that I care a lot about. These are things that we're investing a lot of time and resources into, and I think you should be aware of them because they will help you and your business. The first thing I want to raise some awareness to are our two HW Media events. First is the Gathering of Eagles. The Gathering of Eagles has been hosted by Real Trends and put on for over 30 years at this point. This year, we're bringing the event to Austin, Texas, June 18th through 21st at the Omni Barton Creek Resort. This is HW's real estate brokerage and sales focused event, but it brings together executives from across the housing ecosystem to forge opportunities and develop ways to work together to better serve home buyers and sellers, both in their brokerage needs, as well as their financing, insurance, and other core services needs. Incredible event. I hope you'll check it out on Real Trends or on Housing Wire. Two, Housing Wire Annual. Housing Wire Annual this year is October 10th through 12th, also in Austin, Texas, at the Hyatt Lost Pines Resort. This is our event to bring together the entire housing community to talk about what's happening in mortgage. This is not the place to whine and talk about your problems. This is the place for winners to gain more market share and develop strategies that help them build their businesses faster than any benchmark that they or their peers can set. Join us at Housing Wire Annual to set forward the strategies, partnerships, and uncover the opportunities to help you grow your mortgage and real estate business faster than you ever imagined. And that's it. That's a wrap for today. Check out Housing Wire Annual. Check out Gathering of Eagles. These are resources and opportunities that will serve you well. Have a great day.